And because this was filmed around the Latitude site, obviously there is quite a lot of background noise, and every now and again the wind will blow away the voice of the person you're listening to. So, not perfect, but hopefully very enjoyable conversations. How are you? That is going. I you think are, I'm recording the, uh, us. Yeah, we are recording. This This is the first uh, actual Hello. live bookshop podcast that we've done, which will be going out pre-recorded. We're yes. honoured and proud <laughs> to be the first ever. But it's... Um, this is Jeff, by the way, the, the person just talking now, Jeff Towns, who uh, started using an old mobile library, uh, a bookshop, to reduce the number of books that he actually had around his house. And so, as you can imagine, going around to find books to stock your bookshop, really, is you've got almost no books at home now, have you, Jeff? I wish that were true. Yeah. <laughs> My wife wishes it were true. It, it, Why is book collecting still pretty much a male... Oh no, I oh, I can no? differ, I beg to differ, you should see my house. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but do you, um, and not being funny, do you, do you buy your books to read them? Because uh, Or do you collect books? I There's aspire a... to read the books. Right. So and I feel great. like I need them around me I, I for security. So much. Do you know what I mean? So I need it. You, you, you shouldn't, when people say, oh, you'll never read all these books, that doesn't what matter. They're there. Head? They're yeah. there. No. And I you know the there. information's in there. That's the bit that's yeah. exciting, where you go inside that book. That's why why I buy so many books. Like, let's have a look. Like, for instance, the one that have you still got it? Have you sold it? Oh, phew! There we go. Now I need this book. This is uh, Bram Schuster, Idols of Perversity: Fantasies of Feminine Evil in Fantasy Culture. It's I need that, don't I? Yeah, it's got very racy cover. I love a niche. I love a niche. So shall I get just to the start of the browse then? Because I haven't got anything, oh, any books that deal have with. Started. Oh yeah, we're going to see church. They're on early. What's going on? Not when we're on till eight, are they? It's probably um, eight o'clock. It's eight o'clock. They're on. They're on at the right time. So there we go. So the racy cover, and I haven't got anything but of I, I fantasies of like feminine spoke evil. I by being like, I like books. I'm going to put it back to you. No, um, uh, when I was running my shop, it's always men who come and they say, you rubbed the price out of this. My wife must have known that I paid for it. And then they say, it's got to be a small book so I can smuggle it into the house. And it did seem that it was always widows who came to me and said, will you take all these things away? But I do think it's changed. When I was, I used to be a serious bookseller, but you know, do big book fairs and that. And women were starting to collect books seriously. There's That's great exciting. Collectors. So, uh, but no, it was a male-dominated thing. I think all women have bought books. You know, this absolutely. Men. That's true. That's yeah. true. Yeah. Uh, but I think. But it's a slightly different thing, I guess. You're thinking of it in terms of like collecting in a more. I was about to say, women buy books to read, I think, and for the information. And men are nerdish and want to buy every book by a certain writer Just and have it in a first it. edition and um, have it mint in its dust wrapper. That kind of anal stuff, which is part of my business. I'm not knocking it. You know, that's what put food on the table for the kids. <laughs> um, just selling books for two quid each year is tough, but it's good fun. Yeah. It's a bit like the fact that I do quite niche shows sometimes, as you do. And if you sometimes go, you. Uh, um, I mean, they're obviously mass, mass culture niche. You are. I've seen you on a trailer for BBC Three <laughs> doing some stand-up on that. I think. Oh, no, Dave. It's not, maybe it's no, Dave. Dave it, yeah, no, that's, that's your channel in it, Dave. Yeah. But the, I, I think that with a stand-up thing, whether male or female, is also if you are someone who does weird themed shows, is every single book is the potential to be something that hasn't been unwrapped by anyone else. Like you used to have a great routine about stubs. Mongoose Watch here is oh, one yeah. of the books here. A family here. observed. And, and, and with an introduction by Conrad Lorenz, who used to have ducks following him all the time in Geese and Swans, oh, yeah. Oh, I wish yeah. I had ducks following me the whole time. And we, we thought this was a book about making exotic drinks. <laughs> <laughs>
It has its work on radio. <laughs> there is, just so you know, basically, <laughs> what, what is funny is they've, they've have a racy got a hand model for the cockatiel because they've gone with uh, very ladylike painted mm, nails hand where someone's going, sexy. oh my God, sexy hand and sexy cockatiel. <laughs> this is too much for me. I'm having a menage a trois in the fold out of my pet advisory book. <laughs> the book has been to three latitudes and never sold. It's never been. Four pounds to two pounds. You're going to have to give it away soon. Yeah. This is heartbreaking. It's such a beautiful book. We've got, we've got what, what's been your big sellers? Well, we've got loads of different ways no, of selling. Orwell. Orwell, they want to buy all the time. Any George Orwell that we get. Right. Go, yeah, th those classics. Yeah. People have either had them and lost them and want them again, or give them away, yeah. or they've heard about them and want them for the first time. So those classics are endless sellers. But we have to find different ways to sell books. So he does this thing called the Blind Date Book Club. Oh, I saw it. T tell us about that, please. Yeah, Blind Date Book Club. It's actually my wife that runs it. But um, you have a date with a book, so you don't know what it's going to be. We wrap it up in brown paper and put a clue on the cover. Um, a fairly abstract clue, which might give you a hint towards the genre or the Should we have a look? Let's go towards the books then and find out what they are. So it's a fairly cheap date. <laughs> oh, we put it up this year, yeah. But some people um, take a couple of books and take them home for a threesome. I feel like I should be able to guess what they are, but I just don't think I'm going to be able to. I love you so much. It's scary. Is that not uh, 50 uh, shades of... of uh, no? Fanciest Catalogical co Coalition, like a well-hung parliament. Oh, my God. This is just one Cornetto blind date. But what? This is... Uh, so this is here's, if you can get any of these clues so anyone listening here we've got uh, see I love you so much it's scary that's not misery is it is that misery some of them we wrapped up so long ago, I forgot. See, I would have thought I love you so much, scary might have been misery, Stephen King's misery. What do you reckon? Uh, one of them, the clue merely exotic thriller. Lazy, that one. See, my. my uh, yeah, we, get, we get worn out after a while. Just buy the book! <laughs> my dad used to do that. He'd always, on Christmas presents, he'd write a little clue, but he wouldn't let my mum open it until she guessed. He'd go, no, no, no. And she'd go, I don't know, is it a scarf? Of course it's not a scarf. Read the clue again. So it was like a kind of sometimes an angry Christmas 3 2 one. It was it was quite bizarre. So the Blind Date Book Club is uh, what's this? Uh, Blind Date Boo uh, would like to meet Bloodthirsty Nocturnal Sharp Two. So that is, is that is that it's as, as simple as Dracula or it's is it is it Anne Rice or uh, something like that? Maybe. Twilight. I'm joined by Joshua Idahan, who I first met in a venue that I can't even remember when we were doing a. Uh, it was it was an incredible refugee it was, benefit it was with yeah. uh, somebody, uh, you know, uh, John Hegley do, doing some wonderful things. Kate Tempest, um, and oh yeah, so Tung Fu, Tung Fu, that's Tung it. Fu. Yeah, yeah. And you you were amazing that night. And it's one of those things which I love, which is I think in the kind of comedy world, everything's become a little bit too. Here's just five stand-up comics. Whereas when I first started going when I was 15, there were poets on and there were comedians on and there were a cappella singers and there was loads of stuff going on and Variety. I thought yeah. that night was a great example of stuff where you go yeah you could because I'm always worried about doing stand-up with poets because you go well these these are elevated artists and I'm I'm, oh, lo I'm no, low no. rent I don't but I don't <laughs> think that at all we've actually had because we, we did a we did a proper uh, Netflix troll trying to find a decent com a comedy to watch you know stand-up and there's a lot of that that's kind of American garbage but you know we discovered Ali Wong and people like Ali Wong, Chris Rock, uh, what's the name of that, uh, the ginger fella who writes for The Guardian now? 
Oh, who's that? Ginger fella. Who writes uh, that? Frankie Ball. Oh, Frankie Ball, yeah. Frankie yeah. Ball. <laughs> <laughs> right. Do you know what? I love the fact that I will make sure that Frankie Boyle knows. In fact, we'll even cut out the mention <laughs> of Frankie Ball going, just just the ginger, ginger fella. Just yeah. ginger fella, yeah. And it, it, I think when you, when you find comedy that uh, has more of a point to it and is actually, it, it finds the humour in the detail uh, and it's punching up. It is always something worth celebrating in it and it's always a lot more interesting and you watch it feeling, having laughed your guts off and feeling very informed. I remember one time I watched Chris Rock, his most recent show, and then I went back and I watched Eddie Murphy and I couldn't watch Eddie Murphy because yeah. here's Chris Rock really breaking down like, you know, the ra- racial microaggressions uh, and essentially what's wrong with politics in America and then you go back to Eddie Murphy doing Raw and he's just talking about shit and you're just like, no. So I think it's also the same as like you see a spoken word artist where like, some of them like Kate Tempest can be quite motivating and mm-hmm. you know she she really does pump your blood and then you see somebody else who just does like filler stuff. That Eddie Murphy yes. thing, I remember seeing that first one, Delirious, and he does that whole stuff about I don't want no queers looking at my ass stuff. Oh, and you God. think, well, you know, looking back, you're sending mixed messages. There's this really tight leather pink jumpsuit <laughs> that you're wearing. It's really tight. And you're also saying, I don't look at what I'm offering. But it's um, <laughs> it's kind of weird going back to that. It is, it is. I, I couldn't watch, I've never watched Delirious. Because in, in kind of, uh, when, I got to, when I got to London, uh, we lived in a very Nigerian part of Hackney. And Raw was readily available. Anyone could watch Raw, but Delirious, because it was never on VHS, it, it had a near mythical status. It's like, you know, every time you watched Raw, you were laughing your ass over it. And someone said, Have you ever watched Delirious? And you're like, No, you're like, man, if you had, if you met somebody who had a tape of Delirious, he'd have to come to your house, watch it there with you, and then take it away with him. <laughs> nobody, nobody it, it was that, it was like the unicorn of comedy, show, of comedy shows. And then when I got older and uh, the wonders of uh, borrowing off the internet for free and never having to give it back became available, someone uploaded up uh, Delirious. And I remember downloading it, and I just watched the first. 10 minutes and I thought this is so dated it's like no it's like it's it's there's nothing here to it you can clearly see he was trying to find his way and he was a lot more about playing to the crowd and being the sweary black comedian than, than actually reaching that Richard Pryor status of subverting what essentially was because he did a lot of subversive stuff before he was he... only about 24 as well I yeah. suppose I, I suddenly I, I think of what I was doing on stage 24 and uh, which was to 12 people <laughs> as opposed to the million people <laughs> and and I carry that shame with me and just hope that most people's memory have been wiped of those weird little subterranean gigs yeah. um, well uh, a, fr- a friend of mine he says something really I, I think it's really clever he goes we it's actually Mr G he goes we are of the generation that no longer have to apologize because none of the when we were bad we weren't recorded like we weren't in that internet phase where you know there was that need to post on social media and that was a part of your real life presence you know social media was an extension of yourself you know we i mean i wrote terrible poetry but before myspace even got his legs before you had artist pages on myspace i was doing terrible poetry left right center and that's all gone to the wind so you know if anyone once goes oh yeah josh there was a time when you were very prejudiced i'd be like no yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that never existed. I was born like Jesus, straight from the womb, <laughs> knowledgeable of who I was and what was right and what was wrong. Well, you're right. That's the handy thing that Jesus had is he had those ten lost years. So yeah, we have his kid bit, and then all his embarrassing poetry, all the really bad parables. Yeah. Imagine you are an oak tree and I am a squirrel, and it's not working, Jesus. No, I'll tell you what. By the time I'm thirty, I am going to have the best parables. They are going to be mustard seeds. That's a good start. Go yeah. with that. When, when he was turning, uh, what's it called, wine into piss instead of water. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, no, it's, it's mine. It's like, smell it, smell it. Go and drink it, drink it. <laughs> ah, I got you. I got you. I told you were smart there. Huh? I told you could sip it real fast. Nah, I'm Jesus. I get you. <laughs> <laughs> 
the, uh, there's not enough on the amateur messiah moments either before they can turn pro um mm. this is well you were just mentioning before we start recording this that you have uh done a kind of remix of gil scott heron i have and i have i wanted to start just by asking you what what are you know gil scott heron the, the first time i come kind of came across him it, it was a, a, a revelation mm. uh, uh both his written work and then when you actually when you hear the albums who for you was that kind of starting point where you think, yeah, I want to do poetry, I want to create these things, and I think it's, well, that point where you don't even think it's reachable, who was the person you thought, this? I, you know, I think it's it's actually, what I'll say it's four instances. The first one was uh, Sean Bean reading W.B. Yeats in uh, Equilibrium. It's an action film where all emotions are banned, except for Tay Giggs who was smiling throughout the film for some reason, nobody knows. But Sean Bean was, he was one of these great judges who goes around and he burns books and he kills people who believe in emotions and are feeling and whatever. And he finds a copy of W.B. Yeats, he wishes for the clots of heaven, and he keeps it and he reads it and it makes him cry. And he accepts his death, right? And I remember that poem just making, just moving me in the middle of this big action film where everyone's heads are getting blown off. That was the one thing I carried with me. And then the second time was, uh, was Def Jam Poetry, watching Sonny Patterson. And she did a poem called We Made It. And it was the first version of I Come From Poetry. But hers was so good. She had so many great lines. She had a line about like, you know, we put cayenne pepper around the houses to stop the sniffer dogs, you know? And she talked about like, you know, the raise your ass up, touch your titties. It sounds like a hip hop video, but it's slavery at its peak. And I remember that line just making my head just go clean off. And then I saw Jill Scott live, not Jill Scott Heron, yeah. Jill Scott the singer. She was fantastic and she read this 12 minute poem called Love Rain, which that was the first time I, I really felt like music and poetry could click. And then last time was Poetry Cafe. I went to a poetry unplugged, everyone was terrible. I thought I could do better. So, <laughs> so I wrote, I wrote, oh yeah, and Dizzy Rascal actually. Dizzy Rascal, Dizzy Rascal, when I first heard I Love You on Channel You, I, I, I saw that and I think that was the first time I, I saw Vexed and I. I had some ideas after it and it was just a culmination of all these different moments. I think they all came together when I went to the poetry cafe and I saw the terrible poetry and I, I just thought, yeah, I've seen good poetry, I know what good poetry is, I think I can put my hand to it and yeah, I did. That's the great thing, isn't it? The inspiration both of others' bad works and your own bad work. Yeah. That bit that when you start writing, I don't know about you, but sometimes if I'm coming up with an idea, I realise that uh, I have to start putting down things if I can't get anything in my head because then I have something on the page where I go, wow, that is That's so terrible. bad. And yeah. if that is the only thing that I have to say, this is a disaster. And yeah. and the fear of the shame of speaking that first sentence <laughs> that from your mind is so great. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally like that. I've, I've always, it, the hardest job for me as a, write, as a writer is getting from blank page to anything on the page, right? I mean, when I first started, I used to call my poems anti-poems because I just didn't believe they were good enough to be actually called poems. And now, my first drafts, you, it's just a, a process of just getting something, anything, anything that you can then form into something brilliant. You know, when you write a first line and it's something terrible, like I, there's a poem I'm going to perform today called My Love. And I remember the first line was, uh, my love whispers like a bird in a hurricane. And I was quite proud of it. And then I went to the bathroom, which is which is a great, okay, it's a great judge, you know, because in the bathroom, when you have the shower on, it's either good, you're going to remember that idea and it's going to be a brilliant idea whilst the water's pouring in your face or something within the, between the water and the water splashing on the ground, you're going to go, nah, that was terrible. That was really terrible. How, 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 oh my God, I've got to make it work. I can't, I can't live with that line on picture. And it was by, I have like an, a little Alex Turner in my head. You know, Alex Turner from Arctic Monk, because he's such a great writer. And I've got a little one. And he, I always see him just, just before he touches the microphone and he looks at me and then the line is in between us and he looks at the line and then he looks at me and then he shakes his head. And I, no, that's a really, 
I hate that line. That's a yeah. great idea. Having either an Alex Turner or maybe, a, or for me, a George Carlin homunculus <laughs> that you keep in a skull or a jar, and you, and you go, the homunculus is unhappy. Without <laughs> well, that, is that really growly voice, just going, really? That's the best you can come up with. <laughs> George, can you just give me some of the bits you did from Thomas the Tank Engine? No, 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 no. But I would love to just. You were telling me about one of the new shows you're working on, uh, or, or you've almost finished it, which is about the the death of uh, of, of nightlife in London. Yeah. Which, uh, recently having seen a Mark Thomas stand-up show which was brilliant about the way the property works in London as investment as opposed to in anything which is either creating comfort, uh, security or uh, creativity. And I mm. just, it's, why, why did you decide to deal with that? Well, I've, like I said, uh, before when we were talking, uh, I started this album, we were both thinking about what we were going to write about. Um, I w was a bartender for 12 years, so I I'd been part of the nightlife. And uh, Tom, who's the guy who I work with, Tom Leeper, he was bemoaning the fact that one, GAY had closed down, and secondly, uh, in Brixton, they had the whole Reclaim Brixton movement, which was happening because a lot of Brixton was getting shut down, a lot of uh, Shepherd Bush was getting closed down, and at that time, plastic people, I just said, I remembered going, plastic people was my entry into dubstep, it was kind of like where I would go to. and. I didn't get to go to the last venue. My brother who who runs nights, he got shafted out of a place, a Juno bar that got closed down. And I was just thinking about all these places where people had built a lot of experiences. People had built a, a, a real sense of being. A real, they, had, they had grown a lot of roots and they were getting closed and they were, it wasn't like it was shifting owners and going to something else like another kind of nightclub or another kind of uh, uh, social space. It was just being turned into flats or into maybe some gourmet restaurant and um, as someone who had been working behind the bar I had noticed that there had been a shift in the kind of uh, scenes so to speak that existed and I guess I, I wanted to capture that doing a kind of preachy oh my god the world is getting shut down but sort of try and capture a lot of, lot of the stories and uh, the the events that would happen when I was a bartender the kind of things I would see so we wrote this album in two parts one half was essentially going to be about going out and having a good time and it would be great because I, I, I kind of feel like going out is like falling in love. You only realize it afterwards. You don't realize it before, you kind of realize it after you're like, shit, I'm in love or shit, I just had a great time. Mm -hmm. So one half is kind of like that, you know, it's past 12 midnight and all these people are having a wonderful time and the second half is kind of past midnight and everyone realizes it's terrible and they all, they all coalesce around the, the first track we wrote which is called it All Smoke and No Fire, which is essentially something that happened to me. I don't live in Highgate, I live in Moswell Hill at the moment. So I don't live in Hackney. I live in Moswell Hill at the moment. Um, but I was born and bred in, in Hackney. And uh, one time me and my brother wanted to go out. And we went to a nightclub and um, they wouldn't let us in because I wore trainers. Now the place that used to be, it used to be like a really, really gritty, grimy place, but it got turned into this kind of restaurant, bar kind of place. And we wanted to go check it out because it was five minutes from my house, but they wouldn't let me in because I was wearing trainers. And I noticed that there was someone inside who wore trainers. So I pointed at him and I said, that dude here has trainers. And the, the doorman goes, I don't know about that dude. And I was like, but brethren, I live around here. I live in this area. This is, this is my end. Surely I must have some kind of like owners, you know, Hackney person's permit to get yeah. in here. <laughs> and he was like, no, no, you know, if you live here, then you should know somewhere else, go somewhere else. And I just, I just had a big, massive, full on rant just round the road, just screaming. My brother was like, it's fine, it's fine. That's what this place is like, go somewhere else, yeah. And yeah, I'm, I'm not the most knowledgeable on, on gentrification and how stuff works. I, I know that 
there's a pub in my mom's area that's been turned into a, a designer store. I know Nike has made another shop close in, in Well Street. I don't know who's going to be shopping there. I, I know that a place where I used to live, me, neither me or my family or even my mom, if she sold, she couldn't buy another area in Hackney. Not the same kind of space that we have now. You know, I remember I grew up in Hackney when Mare Street was called Murder Mall. Uh, and to see it change and to see all of this really nice and shiny change happen. It's nice, it's lovely redevelopments and more, more Tesco's and more Coasters and more uh, Sainsbury's all prop up. But at the same time, none of this change is being accessed by the communities that lived there mm. before. They're just getting very gently in, but very firmly shafted to the side and pushed ever outwards. And it, it's scary. It's scary because this is essentially supposed to be the good part of the UK. You know, the part it also that means did. that everyone has been given a very specific product. You go, when you look at all those stores, when you look at all those shops, you know what is in them. Mm. In the same way as when you're talking about the kind of entertainment venues where you go, the spaces to fail or the spaces to explore, that becomes a dangerous thing because you want to go, no, 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 don't, you know what product we have here. Yeah. You know what musical product is here. This is what, here is your entertainment. And you won't leave going, hey, I've had a great time. You just leave and go, oh, the thing happened. Good. Yeah. <laughs> now the other, let's have a coffee where, what this coffee, I know what this coffee. tastes like. There will be no surprise in this coffee or this muffin. Yeah, you, you never have to, you never have to explore or try anything out. I, I first time I walked into a Vietnamese corner shop, it was a big shock to me because first off, I couldn't read anything there. But then I ended up finding like there was a bit of a, a long suite that they sold, which became my favorite because one, there was no other shop around that area. It was kind of like upwards on Mare Street. There weren't any corner shops around there. But it was through that exploration that is, I discovered something that was new to me. Whereas now it's like it's a Starbucks. It's a Starbucks. It's always going to be a Starbucks. It, you know, it's not even going to be a franchise Starbucks where they sell something different. No, it's just a Starbucks. They sell the same things as every other Starbucks you'll ever find. That's it. And it, it's, it's, I mean, for me, I feel it's, it's a shame. I feel it's a, it's, a, it's a deep shame because so much that people built because they didn't have any acts they didn't get any funding they didn't have the access they were ignored they built by themselves and they made it wonderful and now you know property property developers are just coming in you know prices are getting jacked up people are forced to close down shit is getting sold out uh, and essentially that community that that vibe that history is just getting washed it's not even getting like you know archived or whatever it's like someone just tossed a bucket of money and just getting washed and turned into beige mcbeige part seven like beige all around so you remind me of there was a great poetry place near where the mousetrap is on in London. It's been on for 60 years and it used to be called Bungie's and it was just a little kind of vegetarian restaurant run by a Greek couple and you'd have these weird, wonderful little poetry nights and you'd also see it was a time of riot girls. You'd wander down there to get a coffee and there'd be a bunch of riot girls in the corner cutting up things to make their collages for their fanzines and it was, you know, and, and you could spend the whole day there and they didn't mind if you hadn't spent money and kind of... We better stop now because this is the short version because I've oh, heard a long... Oh, thank you very much. I have to go and yell at a poor unfortunate crowd for about for a good 30 minutes about what they've done no wrong. one in this field in Suffolk is poor or unfortunate that's the, oh, they, will they, <laughs> they will be delighted they will be go and destroy them with your Dadaist experiment we also sell books by weight let's go and have a look we have a scales a, a fine vintage scales and um, we've gone pretty straightforward here that um, for Two pounds in money, you get one pound's imperial weight, and that gives you about three books. 
But when we first did it, we were too complicated. I had a menu that said, <laughs> today's prices, Shakespeare, three pounds a pound, Dylan <laughs> Thomas, four pounds a pound, poetry, two pounds a pound. You know, and so that worked. Except it confused people because they don't know what a pound weight is. Uh, but, then but you see also, because Jeff comes from Stratford East, he knows how to stand behind scales. Too and bad for yeah, no. Bye, baby, bye, make your mother cry, aye, aye. <laughs> So Josie's looking at what have you got so far then? Uh, Acts of Darkness, a terrific mystery, darkly luminous parable about innocence and evil. Only murder, a young throat. A lovely book on hand shadows, how you can do hand shadows. as well, light, so it doesn't come in. Oh, nice. Do you know, I actually, I bought that a while back. Looking for a skinnier book. This is... Wait on here. Oh, do you know that book? I gave that to my little grandson and he's put it on the table. He went in the bus, he read it and put it on the table. Well, I'll have it. Well, right. I won't. So we're, we're trying to get a pound for it. No, you so choose. Got, uh, JB Priestley there. <laughs> no pressure. And him rejecting it. I mean, that's the thing, no, isn't read it? it first. <laughs> yeah, you're in. Oh, I'm in. Very quickly. There you go. She's got a quid worth of books. What a deal. That's not bad, that's not bad at all. So that was, uh, you got a little bit of, uh, what's that? Uh, Helen by Evie Cunning, The British Empire, The Daily Telegraph, Book of the British Empire. You love the British Empire, don't you, Josie? Do you know, I actually do not. Right, let's have a look at what... I'll tell you what, though, Jeff, a book that I've been after... Oh, my and I, if you, have, have you ever found... Oh, my God! You are now I looking at... I just realised what this is. This is like a commemorative magazine, the sort of thing you get about Princess Diana, but it's celebrating the British Empire. So it's got a woman... Oh. woman oh. in the Canadian Army, uh, Rudyard oh, Kipling. isn't this bleak? It ends 1997, the year Diana died. <laughs> Or oh, the year Tony Blair became your king. <laughs> so there's different ways of looking at it, aren't there? Uh, Mark Watson, you have a reptile of your own or a dinosaur of your own? Is it a dinosaur I think of he's your a, own? I think he's a, you're a dinosaur, mate. Dragon. He's a dragon. Yeah, oh, dragon. dragon of own. Dragon, yeah. Um, you've got, uh, Mark Watson, you're here to uh, do, uh, well, first of all, plug your new book. Oh yeah. Um, which is, is this right, it's set in Dubai? It it's, is, it's yeah. It's in a place that doesn't quite exist, is, uh, is that kind of the... Uh... Yeah, yeah, it, and it's it's uh, kind of, um, it's a sort of murder story, but set against the backdrop of Dubai with its strangeness. Have you been to Dubai? No, I've changed planes in Dubai, and people always would say, you really should go and play Dubai, and I think, what, you mean, you should really travel further to play to an audience that you avoid in the UK? Mm, I think in your case, you, sh you shouldn't play Dubai, no. Yeah. <laughs> no, not really. I, I first went there for gigs, and it was... Um, I was became very kind of interested in it in, in it as a city in a kind of um, in a concept as well because it's such a on the one hand very artificial sort of place as everyone always says on the other hand it is quite kind of spectacular and uh, so you do get quite drawn into it none of that is to say the gigs are good though they're, they're not not that I remember the first time we went there actually was a um, comedy festival organised by Jim Davidson who lived in Dubai at the time and he'd done it as a tax write-off I think so dozens of comedians were out there playing to audiences of almost no one came to the actual shows at all um, and immediately I, I got the impression this was a place where you, you would sort of go to do stuff that you wouldn't try and do at home I love that tax write-off thing. One of my favourite stories is uh, um, Jimmy Carr. I remember Stuart Lee writing about the fact that uh, Jimmy Carr once asked, you know, said, I'll, I'll produce a DVD for you when, when uh, Stuart didn't think he had any DVD deals. And he thought that was a really nice gesture. And then when the uh, Jimmy Carr tax stuff came out, apparently one of the bits of advice was, put your money into doomed artistic projects. <laughs> <laughs> so that was when Stuart Lee became springtime for Hitler briefly. And I'm quite amazed he hasn't yet done a show called Doomed Artistic Projects. 
subject. Um, mm, me too. That's exactly the sort of phrase he would. He'll have that squirrelled away somewhere, surely. Yeah, I think the uh, <laughs> the um, he's at the stage where he could do something called Doom's Artistic Project and deliberately make it quite bad and spend most of the show uh, reflecting on the badness of it, and it was still be good actually he that, that that is one of the most infuriating things isn't it the fact that he really does that has both an enormous cake and he eats all of the cake as well and we watch on in awe and envy he buries his face in that cake yeah it's not since kitson has someone been able to have a cake on, on that scale and also is it kitson's cake was to not be to sort of reject popularity and repute but also to ha have loads of it and um Kitson's been munching on that cake for about for more than ten years now, and likewise Lee must be really full now from from the. Uh, if you're that good, you are able to. Um, there's no limit to the um, amount of icing that gets trapped in your eyebrows, the backs of your ears as you immerse yourself. Yes, I don't think I'd want to see Daniel actually eat a cake because of all his facial hair and stuff like that. In a way, though, good luck to them because it's an odd phrase, isn't it? You should, if you're going to have a cake, you should be able to eat it. Really, otherwise, it's. It's a bit odd to have it, but not eat it. I think the thing is that once it's been eaten, you no longer have it. Right, so it's not, that, it's, it's, not you, it's not that you, you're not you can't to have the cake, cake and then eat it. It's, I think what it means is that it, at the, it's probably a little bit like uh, you know that idea of, of stepping in the same stream, but with yeah. a, a kind of cake sense to it. In fact, so it's nothing the, like that. The at spirit all. of it is you can't you can't eat your cake and have it. Really, yeah, is what yeah. they mean. It's almost yeah. the other way around. Yeah, but that would sound weird. I suppose is the problem. Yeah, you can't. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so yeah. Um, <laughs> what are your other favourite phrases? Uh, I'm pretty sure I did step in the same stream twice, but well, on one occasion. But because I was sort of staying nearby. But maybe not. Maybe no. Not. That, look, we we cannot d deal with the nature of stepping in a stream and whether it's the same stream anymore. No, we this really is can't. still being confounding people. People so, have been thinking about this for centuries before us. What is the difference in the process of you writing a show and writing a book? How difficult is it for you to sit down and? Uh, go right now this is I have to write this but there is not an audience out there that is wait you know there's not a daily audience that means I have to write something new because well, they're going to be here tonight you'll like, have to just get a phone call from your uh, agent going it's two months late now Mark yeah luckily I kind of I, I am quite sort of self-motivated when it comes to writing um, and and also I don't really when it comes to writing stand-up uh, any sort of show I don't really commit much to paper at all I, I really put it down um, by put it down is not quite the phrase put it together by doing um, just loads and loads of gigs and sort of accreting material so it's the way I do a stand show is much more a case of a, a kind of endless trial and error um, whereas with a but also I don't I don't really um, a lot of people don't enjoy writing a book because as you say rather than being in front of an audience you are sort of burying yourself on your own and uh, eventually emerging with a sort of project whereas that's probably the reason I like it I think instinctively I'm quite a loner and um, if I get the opportunity to just sort of go off somewhere for, I mean it never does work like that going off somewhere because I'm always writing the books in amongst the other stuff but I do in theory I love the idea of um, all the things about writing that put people off like the solitude and the long sort of months of toil and stuff I think attract me to it probably I'm quite perverse like that. I've found it, it I, I have to admit, over time, over the years, I now find it far more, I've got to start working on one soon, or I kind of have, and uh, I really like sitting in my attic and every now and again just peering through the small window at the world and going, I don't have to go there today. Yeah, exactly. And going back into the attic. Well, especially when you think how much travelling you do, both of us, in fact, both of us are enormously prolific um, actual doers of gigs, and um, if you live like that for long enough, you, you almost can't uh, function unless you were in perpetual motion like that which is fine but uh, if you can adjust to the idea of just uh, some days just not going anywhere and purely 
it's a very nice way of living, I think. Yeah, I mean, maybe you have a word target, and I don't tend to do that. But if you do, or even if it's not so much a specific word target, but just a kind of um, an aim to have got a bit further, you do come out of the day with a kind of um, a nice feeling that you've um, you've just advanced the book that little way. And as you say, you haven't. You also haven't had to meet anyone else. There's yeah. quite a lot to be said for it. Yeah, <laughs> that, that sense of achievement is. I mean, I think everyone has that envy of Graham Greene, you know, who famously would get up, write a thousand words, the words, you up. know, yeah. put a bullet in a gun, sit <laughs> there, flick the chamber around, and go right. Let's just play Russian roulette and get drunk. And then I'll tell you what. I'm going to end the day with some Catholic guilt, and that will probably bleed into the work. Tomorrow. A lot of them were like that. Like your Green, John Steinbeck. John Cheever, I think a lot of these Americans as well, they were just like, right, I've written a thousand words, now I'm going to make a table, then I'm going fishing, <laughs> and now I'm going, as you say, come back and get drunk. The one thing they all have in common is they pretty much all came back and got yeah. drunk at some point. Guess who found a bear in the woods? <laughs> oh, God, what are we going to do with it this time? Just hang it in the larder. Don't him. worry, keep him. Anyway, yeah. I'm back to write another 500 words. Yeah, I quite, I mean, of course, people um, create at kind of different uh, speeds and in, with different processes, and um, I wouldn't... Uh, I wouldn't do down people that take ages, right? But but I do kind of I have an admiration for that no nonsense thing of like um I, I met a um a bloke at a literary festival at Hay a few years ago. He was a proper kind of literary author. He'd been nominated for the book uh, he'd been nominated for the Booker Prize a couple of years ago, and I, I, um we were staying in B and B together. I said um so are you you writing a new book now? And he said I I don't know that I am really. I've just taken a year to sort of try and find out what I'm interested in and I thought I'd, most people don't get a year to work yeah. that out whereas someone like Ian Rankin I remember I met at the same festival uh, and, and a bloke like that it is just a book a year and yeah. so he'll just he just has to think of an idea then he has to write it and of course the, there's an argument that quality could deteriorate but, in the case, but there is also an argument that if you if you are, force yourself to be prolific you, you won't necessarily produce stuff of a lower calibre because you might easily do five or six years on it including a year of just working out what interests you and it still might not be that good and then that's five years of your life and we don't live that long <laughs> the Ian uh, Rankin he was at the Larn Festival and the, there was a moment in the audience where Mark Billingham was interviewing him and he had a carrier bag with him this, this was the beginning of April uh, this year and uh, Mark went anyway I presume everyone wants to know what's in your carrier bag and he brings up this enormous you know this carrier bag weighed down by A4 and he went that's the new novel I uh, started that at the end of February and the whole audience <laughs> just went god oh. damn him how dare he, no. he went, oh it's not you know I've finished the basic but I've got a lot of work to do on it yeah, yeah, you've but, written but still, the whole story. He's just—he seems to. Some writers will just do that, and I do admire that. Again, I think. I mean, again, it wouldn't be for everyone. I suppose he's writing a particular type of story. Um, it's not like there's a formula, but nonetheless, once he's got the idea, I suppose he's halfway there, which is not the case for a lot of. Which is not to do down sort of genre fiction, but um, he's just in a very nice groove, I suppose. Like so, that. is yours not sure? Even though yours is a murder thriller, would you not class it as? Uh, uh, it's not a genre. No, not really, because and I, I mean I don't know what the difference. Is. I don't even know if you'd call Ian Rankin. It always sounds quite sneery to say genre fiction, but I think the difference between the, the, my book is more about um, the impact on um, a bunch of people when a murder takes place and their attempts to make sense of it with the, with Dubai's uh, backdrop. There is, in the end, a kind of reveal, but it's not... I suppose what you'd call a proper murder mystery is, is solved by a detective, and there's a lot of actual procedure. That's what would stop me from being able to write books like those guys. The um, You have to really know what the, how the police actually do it and what detectives... There's quite a lot... Not in Ian Rankin's books. I think it, it is zip along really nicely, but you do sometimes read books like that where 
there's an awful lot given over to how they fingerprint and how the forensic evidence comes yeah, through. Yeah, someone and, um, was saying something about, I can't remember what it was that was, uh, one of their characters had psoriasis or whatever, and they spent three months, you know, I better research everything about psoriasis, yeah. and then realised, no, these two sentences of uh, psoriasis was playing up, didn't require no. all the medical journals that I bought. He, he was ever so itchy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sometimes, sometimes you can overestimate. Detective episode one, thanks very much. Exactly, sometimes, yeah. I think you can get too bogged down by it, definitely. I think I've got a soft spot for the old school Poirot type murder where he turns up, um, talks to the suspects, has a bit of a think, and then just puts it together with the sheer power of his brain. So that's probably the difference. This is a book about a murder, but it's not, um, there's no real space given to the procedure. Proce police procedural, they call it. I, I wouldn't be able to do that, I don't think. So I, I remember there's a Mills and Boone set in the Antarctic where there's just a wonderful bit where it explains how knowledgeable this man is by then saying, and he knew many complex things about the Arctic and was considered to be the second most knowledgeable man in the world on the Arctic. What does he know? That's that not really matter. He, he, uh, he was just he ever knew so a lot of very yeah. complex things. It's a funny thing about writing, isn't it? You, the difference between good writing and bad writing is not always easy to because you, you know um, a lot of like an, an Ian McEwan or someone would probably spend thirty pages unpacking exactly what the knowledge consists of and why he was an expert, this guy, and precisely what his sort of speciality was. Having researched it for several months, having shadowed an actual Arctic explorer, and that might improve your reading experience, but it, it might equally not, I suppose. Um, I remember that with reading Stormy Vigil, the Mills and Boone Stormy Vigil, where, in fact, at the Latitude Fest where we are now, and I thought, oh yeah, what is wrong with bad fiction is it has far too much extraneous detail. And then I started trying to read Swan's Way by Proust, and I went, hang yeah. on a minute, I'm not sure. A lot of people seem to rate this a little bit more than Stormy Vigil yeah, and Rashid Yeah, quite Rashi a lot of Trudeau. good fiction also has what you might think of extraneous detail. So it's very hard. Somehow, it's, I, I suppose it's to do with every detail counting in some way, every detail improving or every sentence having some sort of weight or relevance. I suppose that's what it is. Yeah, yeah I mentioned it's a polyester wool mix, but you don't have to do the percentages. That's mm. what perhaps it. Um, are you, we've, got, we've got to go and do a, a gig for ActionAid, so we better Yes, that stop. is true. Yeah. Um, thanks very much, uh, Mark Watson. We're going to do a proper one in London, hopefully. At some oh, yeah, point. I would like to do yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. great. Josie, we're, we're browsing for uh, recording purposes. 1983. That's, this isn't working at all. Yeah, but there's a all. private eye from 1983, so I can finally learn who's right about whether militant are good or bad. <laughs> so that's what, are you going to get that one? Um, yeah, I will in a second. Right, okay then. So, so I've got my book about, uh, this, this by the way, Jeff, this is one that I'm after. Have you ever found uh, a book called Hobbies for the Bedbound? No. See, I that wish is, I had. You know when no. someone tells you about a book and you no. don't, really don't know if it's a real book or whether it's a fictional book? Mm. And someone told me, uh, they, they said, definitely came out in the 1930s when a lot of children had various different illnesses, even things like, you know, it's mm. quite quite melancholy, things mm. like polio mm. and stuff. Here were hobbies if you were bedbound. So kind of like a companion piece to the secret garden. I'll, I'll keep my eyes open it for you. Of course I will, but uh, I've never seen it. Well, that, that is top dollar, that one, if you... Yeah, uh, yeah. I've Jason, found, what have you found? I found a book about the International Brigada, uh, people who went to fight in the Spanish Civil War that I'm probably going to get, actually, because it's just little accounts of all the different people and what they did, and uh, it's the kind of thing I like. See, this, I'm moment. really fond of mobile libraries, because the first library that I ever went to was a mobile library. I remember getting, when I was nine, I took out a book about Hitler, 
and I don't know why. And then I, you know, when you make stories up when you're a kid, and I remember telling my grand, I said, uh, do you know actually, uh, Hitler never smiled. There's a uh, historical truth, and I just and you made it up. Yeah, I just thought that's probably that impressed my grandmother. My love of uh, interesting of Laurel and Hardy, and my knowledge of the lack of smiles uh, from fascist dictators in the 1930s. And there aren't uh, too many pictures of Hitler smiling either. In my experience, having had books about Hitler on my bus before now, you never uh, see him smiling on the front of a book about no, the war or anything. No, no. To be fair, there are fewer books uh, with pictures of him pouting on the cover. <laughs> that is definitely the one where there's the lowest amount of... Uh, yeah, generally on the cover. Because you always have that, there's that lovely thing that um, when you see him with his secretaries and stuff, you know, and he's, and he's being all, like, what you might call charming. And uh, someone said about Hitler, they went, oh, he was terrible, he had such... Oh, hang on, what have we got here? Hey, oh, so that's Dylan Thomas and the hermaphroditic me. Jeff Towns. <laughs> so we found oh, I'm sorry, uh, the hermaphroditic by Jeff Towns. It does actually look like the hermaphroditic Jeff Towns. Uh, this is called the Blackheath Countercultural Review, and it's beautiful. Hand-printed by a lad who lives in Wales oh, on a little Adana. yes, please. He does it all himself. His name's uh, Geraint, Geraint Hughes, and he plays in a band called Mustard, who are Mustard, but it's Mustard spelled Welsh, Mustard, M-W. Oh. Yeah, they're great. And he prints these books. He prints Billy Childish and people like that. So he's got a really good list. Yeah. But we started this a couple of years ago down in Laugh. So we did volume one. Volume two, um, I got Ian Sinclair's in it. Oh, wow. Yeah, did a really good piece. And Heathcote Williams. Heathcote Williams gave us a sensational colour. Yeah. Right, so you've I'll got a book about, about the uh, International Brigada. And I'm going to get my 1983 Private Eye so that right. no one well, don't, can Hang on a minute, we've still got a lot of browsing so to do. See, Which I Alistair Grey book are you looking for? Oh, um, I was looking for Janine 1983. Oh, the dirty one. <laughs> <laughs> Josie! You can't there's, pretend there's it's not! There's a dirty one still. <laughs> Something so. there is really dirty. Sorry, <laughs> I feel like I put you on the spot there. I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. I was. I had a conversation with a friend of mine about that very book because he's adapting it for a play up in Glasgow at the moment, and he had to get the rights off of Alistair Gray, and it was very tricky it's to do. Probably is. Anyway, I'm so sorry. Sorry. Don't sorry. worry. It's, it's alright. I'm sorry. What I really mean is, I'm an adult and I'm making a silly joke, and I don't mean anything. I'm sorry. Well, that's got the bookshop closed down. Brilliant. Oh no. Brilliant. I'm sorry. Jersey. I should have said this. This is proud thing. Because, well, at the moment, there's obviously a lot of people fighting within the Labour Party. and You, you always get people going, oh, 1983, uh, Michael Foote, no, no, no. And so, you know, I thought it might be quite interesting to read Private Eye at that time, see what they were saying, see what was going on. Yeah, also, anything from it. Yeah. Uh, we, always, um, we always ask people why they, they choose certain covers. Uh, but when we were at the, the Good Life Festival, uh, Keris Matthews' festival, Last year, a girl bought one with uh, Robert Maxwell on the cover. Ha. And we said, what have you bought that for? You know, why would you want one with such an evil guy on it? And she went, that's my granddad. <laughs> and, and she said he was massively misunderstood. <laughs> oh, <laughs> my God. So we, we yeah, Kinnick's yeah, my granddad. Yeah. Oh, my God. But, uh, yeah, I'm just quite interested in it. I, because I, I don't know enough about it, and it's very, very difficult to get any kind of perspective on it that you feel you can trust because everyone has such an angle. When they talk about the 80s and, when, and the 70s and politically, everyone's got some kind of really deep set kind of emotional narrative to it. So you never hear, I don't know, I never feel like I get any sense of real balance about it. Do you want to just do the cover justice because it's got a comedy cover? It's got Neil Kinnock. Yeah. And that's Michael Foot. Michael Foot. Is that Michael Foot? Yeah. No. 
Yeah, it is Michael Foot. Is isn't it? it? Yeah. I just worry that I'm being too yeah. stupid. Yeah. Yeah. And it says new Labour shock. Which, um, I'll tell you what, they just want to wait another 14 years for a new Labour shock, am I right? Um, and it says, I've just sold Hattersley my car, which I presume at the time was not really funny, because they're never really funny, no, are they? No. Still the best one ever, I think, is Enoch Powell with his arms outstretched, just saying, and some of them have ones this big. That, which I reckon must have been Peter Cook, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, no, I yeah, reckon that would have been his speech bubble. I'm excited to look at it. Anyway, yeah. be fun. Yeah, right. So, what great. else you found, Josie? Because you were. Um, but I've got my two. I've got my two very so loaded political books. What about this? You see, this this, this is a copy of. Uh, right, we've got. Oh, Colin Wilson's editions. the outside. Beautiful editions. No, because yeah. I feel so embarrassed. I'm so sorry. But <laughs> <laughs> I've been funny. Oh, that was the one that was banned in Iceland. Taste, Don't no. say that, Josie. Beautiful edition. Oh, hello. Coming on, finding nice books randomly because there's no order on the bus. Yeah. The stocks, the big, the bus is so small that there's no point having sections like bookshops, and they're boring these days. None of the sections. You know, what yeah. does topography mean, and what does yeah? You know, and it's so too you, prescriptive in that way anyway yeah. because you sort of you you're less likely to stumble well, you upon get something. the serendipity of yeah. you know, weird juxtapositions. So we, there is like the poetry is all in one place, and because the art books are big, they're always on the big shelves. But otherwise, you can find anything next to anything. Um, and that's like the problem that. with the internet now, where yeah. you think when you've done a search, it's given you everything. But in fact, already it's gone. We know Jeff Towns, the sure. uh, guy, the hermaphroditic <laughs> author, and uh, so some algorithm at yeah, work. Yeah, there's an algorithm which means you're not necessarily going to find mm. weird treats. Mm. The but the one I was going to ask you about, Josie, is I've got. Uh, well, I've just done with it. This copy of uh, the Outsider is the book that I've bought the most copies of. Oh every time there's a different cover I think maybe I need it because yeah. somehow it'll go into my head better if I've got seven copies of this yeah, yeah. rather than see that I wonder is is that where we would say when you were saying before about kind of mail because I'm not like a collector I don't care whether something first edition or whatever no. I just kind of get excited again because these things become a little bit more totemic yeah yeah, it's the booker's object, the book with a different... You said you love the different covers and you like the cover on that one. Yeah. I actually... my, my I think my all-time favourite book is Catch-22. And I have now got this pyramid huh. set of shelves of... At the bottom is a large print version of Catch-22 for when I'm old and almost blind, signed by Joseph Heller. So that's the bottom one. And it comes up and the top is a little cassette of Joseph Heller reading sections of Catch-22. And in between is every edition of Catch-22 that's come out. And then I've got a film poster and some... We, How get, many different covers have there been? Because for a long time, it still has been that kind of red cover with yeah, the no, golden no, boss thing. I've got six. You know, so you can start. It's just... And then when you, if you see it, you think, oh, that's nice. I'll put that with those. You can never have... Of your favourite book, you can never have enough copies because you can give them away to people. Then. Yeah, um, and it's, it's quite distressing when you don't have a spare copy of a book you really, really love. Yeah. Because you... You want to share it. But yeah, you, think, you don't want to give away your copy because the amount of times no. I've done that and then you never get it back. He, he comes to stay at my house and he says... Uh, he goes, he says, oh, I've taken, I've taken a Browdigan, Richard Browdigan, who's another favourite of mine. Yeah. And when I go to his house, I hunt to see which one <laughs> he's taken, just to see it's all right, that, you know, I've got yeah. another one of those. Or, or better still, he has to come home to his own house and look around the shelves and try and work out what's gone. Oh, <laughs> but then that's too hard. Like, I, I find that I can't keep track of what I've lent out, but I know something's missing, <laughs> you know, and it hurts. It doesn't matter that I don't I know. know what it is. It doesn't matter. I know. It's just... Oh, it, it, you know, everybody's relationship with books and what they do with them and why they have them is so different. And yeah. We all get different things out of them. Yeah. And uh, um, there's a lady now making a, 
a perfume based on the smell of old books. I met her in, I actually met her at number 10 Downing Street, believe it or not. I'm not going to tell you why, but she was there. And she We've got a... someone moving out. Do you want to buy these books, Jeff? <laughs> yeah. 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 Cameron's library. Oh, yeah. Can you imagine many books what it about cats, actually. Sticky yeah. books about Thatcher. <laughs> <laughs> books about cats that look like Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> With all the in bikinis. Cats <laughs> like Thatcher in bikinis. <laughs> Does that book exist? No. Um, but anyway, yeah. Perfume. Yeah, books, you know, perfume. She actually makes a perfume of old books. And her best customer is Stephen Fry. Ha! Which I think is really nice. He yeah, dabs a bit of that. old book behind his ear, you know, before he goes out on the town. I spoke to guilty feminists Sophie Hagen and Deborah Francis White. So. Sophie, uh, you, you must have a book. You must be writing a book now. The, the Guilty Feminist podcast has been enormous, hasn't it? Well, I mean, there are people interested, but uh, I don't know if anything's... Nothing's planned yet, but it's in the periphery. What's that? Am I using that word correctly? Yeah, it's fine. You can use the words however you want. This is a Thank festival, you. and ever since Theresa May has been described as a liberal, I believe that dictionary ah. definitions have become much looser <laughs> than they were in June. Uh, so, what was your... You've been a stand-up for a few years now. You had a very successful uh, show last year, wasn't it? It was 2015. Yeah. And what inspired... Why do you write and feel the need to create and perform? Oh, I've always done it, I think. Ever since I got a computer, or even ever since I got a pen, I was just writing and writing. I think it's because I'm, I'm kind of introverted and I'm not good with people and situations. So writing is a way of taking control. And create like if you created yourself, you'd know exactly what it is in the universe and the and everything within that. And that gives me like a sense of calm. And, like it calms my anxiety that I can, I'm in charge of a world that I create. So as a stand-up, you're and, and we go on to Deborah, of course, because she's interviewed an enormous number of stand-ups for her book. About this. But the reason you can be a stand-up but you can't be socially any good whatsoever is you are allowed to do now. I can control my world and I control what I say, and everyone is looking at me, and that's fine. And then the moment you walk off stage you go I don't want to mix with anyone because then other people are also have a foot in controlling the world exactly that's why I can be on stage because there's no no one's talking it's all me I prepared everything from home which is like the opposite of when you're at a party or something and you don't know people are just going to bring up a topic and you don't know what you're going to say about that topic and it's so anxiety written that I prefer when everything's <laughs> under my complete control which makes me sound like a fun person <laughs> no I think we all I think it's true of most I mean what did you think Deborah you, you interviewed a lot of uh, stand-ups for your book yeah they're all basically seeking control over a reckless world uh, where they cannot they can, we really it's an illusion it's an illusion that we control anything but it's it's a it's I suppose there's something that I think now about stand-up comedians is we were often people who are unincluded my big new obsession is inclusion. And people who are unincluded have found a way to include themselves and actually overly include themselves in a room. Because it's an, it's an, stand-up comedy is an example of overly including yourself. You are too included in that room. You are the only thing that's included. And if, you, if someone else is included, it's because you've decided they are. And that's why hecklers are seen as the worst possible thing by people who don't really know much about stand-up comedy often. Because it's like someone else has included themselves. How are you going to deal with that? And the answer is, well, you can interact with that person. Really, you've got the mic. So you really decide how much they're included or even if possibly they're thrown out. So are we in a great control of our world when you reach that point where if someone heckles and it's not of any interest and you merely brush them aside, that means that you actually have, your, your ego is better 
or worse? Because that bit where one of my favourite bits of heckle put down I saw was Gina Ryan many years ago, where she got someone who was just the typical kind of, you know, sexist, show us your tits heckler at this gig in Milton Keynes. And all she did was just go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then get back to it and they go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it made that person uh, basically entirely, you know, they became an increasingly shrunken Relevant, and flaccid yeah. individual. Well, what she was doing is saying, I choose not to include you. I'm the cool kid in the high school, um, groovy, you know, sixth form. Uh, this is my high school experience, clearly. The groovy sixth form common room. <laughs> when was I born? Uh, and, uh, yeah, you, you, when you know when you're a teenager, what I mean is if you're an adolescent and you're dismissed, you've, you've, you've turned up, you've assumed inclusion in a teenage group and no one else agrees that you're included. And it's the worst feeling in the world. They just turn away from you, they shift, and you find you're, you're excluded. That's what happened to that Heckner. He included himself, he assumed inclusion, and he discovered he was not included because she brushed him off. She didn't engage. If you overly engage a Heckler and you're very skillful, you include them, but you win the status battle. What she did is, I'm not really including you here, mate. And that's another perfectly valid strategy. Brilliant. Module 3.7 has now been done on this particular course. The, um, because you do a, a podcast, Guilty Feminist, what for you, wh where should people start? What do you think are the great works of, of feminist literature or feminist education? I, I think that when I was kind of a teenager and I was hanging around with some Australian feminists, it was about the time that there was a mixture of Susan Faludi and Naomi Wolf. They were the kind of, I suppose, the, the people of the time. And then Kate Roth shortly afterwards with The Morning After, where things kind of change slightly where would you start i would uh for, for someone coming from the outside which is most a lot of danish people i know because in denmark feminism isn't really a thing yet and to them i uh i suggest uh sarah pasco's new book uh, animal and then uh, uh lindy west's new book shrill and that's so they cover like feminism and fat phobia and and they're both hilarious and sarah's so funny and it, it's a very easy way into it because the first book i bought was uh What's it called? Vagina? Is that no? That's no. Vagenda. Was it the vagenda? Vagina. The, oh no, the it's vagina. It's called vagina. Right. right. Uh, there's a picture as well, so I know that was the title, <laughs> and it had a long. It's a good, lot isn't of, it? Because sometimes you can judge a book by its cover. Yeah. <laughs> it really does, yeah. <laughs> but it had so many long words, and it was very complicated. Who was that by then? I don't remember vagina. Probably had a different name in the UK. That was probably the day in, in, in the UK it would have been. I like, think it was no. I'm, I want to. I feel like I want to say Naomi Wolf. I feel like I, like I can say that on. Or Noam Chomsky. <laughs> I would like Noam Chomsky to a, vagina. I've decided to move into a different area. My new book, Vagina. Oh God, Noam. The, um, so, uh, oh here we go. Am vagina. I, oh, it was not Naomi oh, Wolf. Thank, yeah, a new thank biography. Jesus. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's it's impressive stuff. But it was, it was too it was too complicated because I was very new to feminism and I didn't know all the things. So if you if you're new to it, I would I would start with something that's so entertaining in the way that Sarah's book is that you don't feel like you're learning, but you are. I agree. Animal I, is great. I so recently good. confessed on the Guilty Feminist. We do a part on the Guilty Feminist where we say I'm a feminist, but and we admit something. And mine was I'm a feminist, but I recently read Sarah Pascoe's Animal to distract myself from the pain of a Brazilian wax. <laughs> A book which specifically <laughs> says, why is it even called a Brazilian? And, and it's tactless, it's an area that is affected by great deforestation. Uh, protect the Amazon. And I have to say, I, I was not protecting my Amazon as I was reading it, but it did. It was a great distraction, and it's the book I had on me. It's a lovely thing. Yeah, what, what is feminist, feminism useful for? It's a wonderful distraction during my uh, Brazilian ne wax. necessary yet fascistic beauty regime. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
I think I think that's why people threw themselves under horses. Maybe indeed she threw herself under that horse as some kind of waxing thing that she had been told the best way as a suffragette to reduce the amount of pubic hair is often a horse running over you at high speed will reduce that. I often think the irony is they did protest starves. They starved themselves in protest and now it's very anti-feminist to starve yourself in protest um, because of body fascism, it's just the, the terrible irony that, that grassroots feminism started on a, on a on a very low calorie diet. So um, sad. The um, yeah, the 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 thing we give people is actually uh, a piece of suffragette jewellery. Um, so we do we do actually uh, tip our hat to this very thing because suffragettes wore. I mean, this is debated. But the story is suffragettes wore their colours in jewellery to identify each other. So if they were sort of grand Edwardian ladies, if you were in a drawing room, Robin, and I looked over and I saw that you had a, a green, purple and, and white pendant or a brooch, I might think, hmm, are you a suffragette? And I might say something that implied to you that I was, and then we could have a sort of secret discussion about it that wouldn't sort of blow the comedy of manners around us uh, out of the water. Um, and so I talked to an historian about it, and she said, look, you can't know that all jewellery of that colour that's Edwardian is in fact worn by a suffragette they were popular colours but she said it's, it's sort of worth doing it's a sort of token and some of them have got stories to them mm. some of them actually say votes for women and those ones mm. we can probably say were worn by suffragettes <laughs> um, but yeah we always give people do we always give people jewellery because we think it's a sort of like embodiment of guilty feminism that's like audience members let's oh, just we make that just rock very up clear people in the street and give it to them no if you've been a guest on the guilty feminist that's what you get and then yeah. if you're wearing it on your coat someone else might say you've done the feminist because you're wearing because we're kind of the same as the suffragettes we do a lot of the same work we're so like the suffragettes so aren't noble. We, they would definitely have been mainly podcasting we right. all would they, yeah do you know what they would have if there'd been podcasting available i truly so, believe yeah. emmeline pankhurst would have had emmeline yeah. pankhurst's half hour and it would have been podcasts and feminist emoticon design Oh, yeah. I think that's what it would have been. Completely, completely. I really feel like they would have used all of that. If they'd had the internet, we would have had to vote years earlier. Are either of you doing any other shows at Latitude or is the Guilty Feminist, uh, is, that, is, that, is that it now? I'm going you, home. Sophie, Are you hanging around at all? You're, you're um, out of here. Getting so, Sophie, right Sophie, now. Sophie's not camping. Oh and uh, uh, I am staying in a hotel nearby, but I'm coming back on Sunday to do Global Pillage. So Global Pillage came out of a Guilty Feminist challenge. So we always do a challenge. So the first one we ever did was nudity, and my challenge was to take my clothes off in front of an art class and let them draw me, and then look at the drawings and sort of be okay with that. Um, so we did one on representation, and women are obviously massively underrepresented everywhere. So I decided instead of just complaining about it, I would start my own comedy panel show that was just diverse. Uh, it doesn't have to be all women, but it's diverse. So uh, I did eight, I've recently recorded eight episodes, and it's, it's uh, as a podcast that's gone very well it's called Global Pillage and it's two teams of comedians versus the hive mind of the audience and the hive mind normally works because diversity works um, the hive mind normally win um, and the questions are all about cultural diversity it could be like if you're 30 unmarried and 30 in Germany what do your friends make you do could be an idiom could be something about the patriarchy um, but it's all about cultural diversity um, and so I'm doing that on Sunday afternoon at 2.55 and as yet the only straight white men I've booked have been immigrants as yet I mean I'm not ruling out straight white men I love a straight white man me but I just haven't had any room for them because oh, I went out to loads of women first and they all just went sort of fuck yes immediately 
I've don't had... put that in your instruction, though. Just go, and we're also joined by a smashing couple of immigrants. That can really now... <laughs> I'm an immigrant, Robin, so I'm, I'm an immigrant oh, proud. Yeah, but it's just a, there's a way probably of introducing it without it. Well, I maybe this say, is the no. right time to do it. I don't say <laughs> this is an immigrant. You yeah. can yeah. No, that's what I'm saying. It's, uh, when you just said it, it's going, uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, today I uh, couldn't find any other straight apart from a couple of immigrants who are no, no, very, very useful. You misunderstood my booking process. I'm right, saying... Well, I really have, yeah, and no, I'm no. very worried about it because in Suffolk, as you know, this is uh, one of those hotbeds for going and you heard about the Latitude Festival yeah none of our local straight white men with a cultural <laughs> knowledge were used they used a couple, couple of, of immigrants immigrant panelists yes immigrant yeah. coming over here stealing our panel shows yeah uh, yeah I have had three uh, three straight white men over eight episodes um, and uh, Radu Isaac's done quite a few episodes though he's, he's remaining and he really is coming over here stealing our, stealing our, stealing our comedy panel shows he's, uh, he's a Romanian comedian um, who's the most adorable man in the whole world um, but yeah men have sort of had to bring another sort of diversity if they've wanted to come and play so far that's not I'm not ruling anything out but if I if you come on at Robin the first question I, I ask you on the panel as the host is how are you diverse and then you have to pitch me some sort of diversity what would you say Robin do you know what I, I think it's time that I was marginalised for my absolute lack of diversity of the fact that I my uh, English vicar background I mean that's how I, I basically am something that was found in the background of a constable painting that came to life so it's a very uh... Are you? Are you must have parentage of some sort, though. Like yeah, yeah, but it? it's kind of it's it's English vicar stock. It's it is. I am uh, you know a mixture of uh, pasty shipbuilders and pasty vicars from the northeast and the northwest. Really? Yeah. And there's no. Oh, somewhere along the line will be a terrible Victorian guilty secret. Oh, well, we I, haven't unearthed that it's yet. It's so weird because you really stress the Tory and the Victorian there, and yeah, I think yeah. oh, what a terrible Victorian secret. He's, a, he's, a, he's from a long line of Tories, that's what he's just told I, us there. To be honest, uh, in terms of being left-wing in my family, it is definitely something atavistic that has given me that uh, socialist gene. Oh, really? Yeah, it's, oh. it's not overtly shared. Oh, that's, a, that's, that's very interesting, because I discovered my biological family and discovered that I was much more politically akin to my genetic family than I was to my adopted family. It's interesting, really, really interesting in terms of liberal politics. It's just, it's really weird. Now, I'm not saying there's a gene to be liberal, but there is. But then, no, I don't know. <laughs> there obviously is. Empathy kind of, you're being taught empathy. And I feel like that really is the same as being left wing. Yeah, but I'm saying. Because my mom is like, she's a socialist, but she doesn't know what socialism is. You know, she's very working class, you know, works in a factory, has, you know, dropped out of school when she was 10. She knows nothing, basically. She asked me what, why people saying right and left all the time. And I had to describe that to her. But she taught me the empathy that made me become left wing. So I think that's something. But then again, your point about your biological parents yeah, <laughs> that yeah. you've no, never, I mean, not, who didn't raise you. Good empathy. point. You know, <laughs> they've just got... But we will look forward to the empathy gene from you and the liberal gene, which will be the Christmas. So, yeah, it's a very interesting, that, that empathy thing, because you know, I always used to talk about how great empathy is as a human being, and then someone went, just remember that empathy is why people can torture so effectively. And you go, oh, yeah, there's bad empathy as well. Good empathy and bad empathy. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, the uh, the Guilty Feminist podcast is, you do about one every week, don't you? Every other week. We yeah. release them every second Monday. And every other Monday, there's a little trailer for what will happen next week. So, yeah, every second Monday at the moment. Thank you very much. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you. Thank you for having us. I've just noticed this book up here that says, yeah. Think Clearly! Exclamation mark. Yeah. A popular guide to logic uh, in everyday life. What's yeah, this uh, like? Uh, well, uh, it's, it's a part work, an early part work.
telling you how to live clearly and well. So That's part work was like like the buy, buy number yeah, one of yeah, things, sure. clearly, yeah. get number two yes. with free wow. binder. And this is the binder, see, it's like a, yeah. it's not a real binder, it's, it's caught on wires. Each issue is hooked on a wire. Well, so imagine that. Book nine. What, what journals do you take? I take Think Clearly. <laughs> how long have you been yeah. taking it? Seven yes, years? Yes. <laughs> Scientific thinking. Mm. You have to get into issue seven or book seven for scientific thinking. Oh wow! Let's see what we go to next. I really like this. The key to rapid learning. Oh thank God! It does have an air to um, things that you'd find at the back of a magazine. Oh wow! Must that yeah. Is good, but that's weird though, isn't it? Because yeah. I don't think you'd mm. want to smell it in the same way like that, that you go. Person. The smell of a cheese is delightful, but not on a human being. Do you know what I mean? This is. <laughs> That's because I said that guy was buying a dirty book. Now everyone's no. lost it. Yeah, yeah. Now everyone's smelling the books. I feel so books. guilty about saying that guy. But it's the dirty this is, one. This, uh, is, well, this is like that awful bit at the end of Perfume, where the perfume's been made, and now everyone's come and they're all smelling the books, and they're all, they're oh, it's all... Do you know, when I, my old housemate, Daniel, when we talked about that, we watched the film, and we summed yeah, it up. Okay. Daniel turned to me and he went, and then they all have a lovely fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Um, can, can I I'm show sorry, you one other I'm thing sorry, that we're proud of one of us? We've got yes. this thing over there called Poetic Type. We bring old typewriters and kids sit down at the table and type oh, poems wow. and adults. And then they post them and then we're going to publish them when they're out. Wow. Come on, come yes. see it. But wait, I've got four Three things. Right, I've we'll got leave three those. things I want. I'm yeah, going to come back and get these. Yeah. Yeah. I found a book, uh, which is a biography of Robert, uh, Robert Owen. And it just says yeah, on the Robin's front, Robert Owen, socialist, which I'm so into. Yes. Just very much on brand. Yeah, well, you know. The best socialism in uh, the UK comes from Wales and Scotland, doesn't it? Absolutely. I don't really know what I'm talking about. I'm an idiot. I apologise. Right. Oh, these are really. Uh, where's the one trim and something or whatever? The, the, there was one. You probably sold it now with all these. Uh, oh, old razzles. Look at this. Oh, where's this? it? Where's it gone? Take the there toys was... from the boys. That's uh, um, gay music. Oh wow! It's from that that the, the Fallout Marching yeah. Band. And they were a. a Pink San Francisco. Wow, crew. that's really cool. It's great, isn't it? Yeah, the design's yeah. amazing. Oh, this yeah. one's a, for X Men. X, as in X. There we go. The world's loveliest women in a field with their pants around their ankle, looking really awkward. It really, looks like she's, really she's awkward. Like she's got diarrhea, doesn't it? <laughs> she's like, oh. She does look uncomfortable. Yeah. Well, that's another fetish, as well as cats that look like <laughs> Margaret Thatcher in bikinis. That's her. Thatcher bikini cats. Our early railways. Ooh. Oh yes. The assassination of Sir Cliff Richard. Did this years ago. What is an old fanzine? No, he, he's a punk writer, and so he put this out, and it, every couple oh, wow. had a split. Uh, Amazing. But it came out this in. It's my kind of thing, you know. 1995. Wow. So, you know, he has been assassinated recently, really, hasn't he? What? Um, his character. Of, yeah. And then mean, you I, don't think it's a stitch-up, do you? No, I don't. But it's he's weird. been as good as taken out. Yeah. Yeah. Blimey. No, I don't. No, I don't think. But it, you know, it's. Uh, Anyway, Sid Howes, he's a mate of mine, and, and you get half a record. That's brilliant. <laughs> oh, it's mistletoe and wine. It couldn't be better. It just says mistletoe. <laughs> yeah, sure. Amazing. Yeah. This one looks good. Annie oh, Besant. this one's Occult Chemistry. But there was one that had such a great title. You must have sold it, but it was called something like um, Trim and Shapely. Or lovely Leslie. You Lovely Leslie. La Femme, packed with some of Britain's most gorgeous girls. Oh. At least they're trying. Yeah. Oh, but I like the that's fact that, hot. That's, yeah, look at that. Tell you what, man. Old-fashioned 1960s pin-up girls. They're very sort of warm and real, aren't Cuddly. they? Yeah. 
Yeah, well, some it. of them, uh, they have been airbrushed, which makes them look totally unreal. Oh, yeah, you can see. Hang on, there was some... Blimey. <laughs> Calm down. I'm not, well... I'm just here as a, uh, as a disinterested observer. You're just a cultural commentator, Josie. It's fine. Cultural commentators even get their money back on buying uh, La Femme. US, seriously, the top models of America. America. Look at her. She, look at her nipples, man. Yeah. That is a sentence, by the way, we've never had on our, <laughs> our, our, our book. Uh, and now um, let's go to the children's typewriters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like that one, great artists. Yeah. yeah, you learn everything in a book a quarter of an inch thick about great artists <laughs> in the world. That's all you need to know. Absolutely. I used to love it when I got teach yourself nuclear physics. Ha! You know, they were. What is upsetting with these? Great artists, great composers. You can bet there's not going to be any women in there. Okay. Bit depressing. Do you know what? In every single one, it's Marie Curie. So even a great <laughs> artist and composer goes, Marie Curie used to whistle when looking at radium. No. All this, all this, there is one woman. She, <laughs> she, she held the potatoes for Raphael to paint. Oh, well, at least we tried, didn't we? Right, let's have a look at the typewriters. These are vintage typewriters, and uh, people don't know what typewriters are anymore. We have to teach everybody how to use them because they're all computers and that, and they can sit here and each letter makes their words. So even though it's really impractical, having a typewriter is a bit like having a car that's partly made out of wood, you think it's really good actually, it's much better than having one of those oh, non-wooden okay. cars. And then eventually oh, as you're in a lay-by, or alternatively you're trying to send your manuscript that actually has caught fire, and then you go, actually computers were useful as well. And Becky and Sally who ran this for us, they're typewriters, but they were saying how um, it's amazing because the kids make mistakes but can't delete it and there's no spell check, so they have to sort of deal with the mistakes. Yeah, they just have to come to terms with things aren't perfect, and that's great. Didn't Roald Dahl? Roald Dahl still wrote with typewriters, didn't he, all the way to, to the, uh, the, the, even when there were early word, word processors, isn't that right or not? Size obsession comes more from the big poets, so Hunter Thompson always writing with typewriters. Well, yeah, with a great big uh, cigarette exactly. on a cigarette yeah. holder, yeah. So that's where size obsession oh, yeah. with the typewriters came from. Oh, yeah. And uh, they've slowly filled up our house ever since. But we bring these to the festivals because the kids have a go on them. They've never seen them before, and their parents have brought back lots of memories for them. So it's nice for them to have not a screen and express themselves. So we've got lots of poems in this old typewriter box by people that have come to the festival um, this weekend. And some of them are fantastic. We were reading them last night. Some really long ones, some really heartfelt, and some are just two lines and they make you laugh. Oh, that's shift. But it's great, yeah. But that noise is, there is a Christian rush to that noise. Even if you've never seen the opening titles of Murder, She Wrote, it goes back even further than that. You know, it's, uh, what have you typed, Josie? Please read it to us. Yeah? No, I don't want to read it out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Not very good. I'd like to read it there now. Okay. Yeah. Right, so this is uh, the poem Josie is Long's poem, which fortunately, because uh, I am so sick of WhatsApp, waiting for grey ticks to turn into blue ticks. That's amazing. Dumb me, kill. Oh, sorry, dump me. Kill me. I don't care. Plomp. It's a great poem. I think it says plomp at the end. Okay, this is a better one. <laughs> Don't eat my baby, she said. I shall eat your baby, it said. Take me instead, she said. Shan't. <laughs> That's a good one. Once there was a little boy with curly hair and freckled eye. 
when he went to school one day, he decided to eat a pie that had jib in it, lol. It's <laughs> a great pie. The fact that that will be one of the first times that lol has been in a, 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 a typewriter. I can't find these. Yeah, no smiley faces. We found a wonderful one yesterday and it shocked us all. We read it and we were all like, wow, that's actually amazing. And the lady yeah. had just sat down at the table and written about her journey to latitude with her children. And it was amazing. We all just kind of stopped and had to take it in. There is something that changes though, that, that uh, it's like when my mum died, we found a drawer which had some poems in. I thought, I don't know if she just copied out, she was a big Rod McEwen fan. You will remember Rod McEwen, Jeff, a lot of people don't. And then, and then I looked and I think they were just some original poems that she just wrote. She sat as a typewriter and she wrote some poems. And the, you know, it doesn't matter whether they, the, whatever they are, there's something about the inkiness of it. There's something about the way that the keys hit the paper that makes a different kind of passion to it. Yeah. This one we've just found, it, it looks like we've written it ourselves, but we haven't. It's called Striking Keys. Literature, poetry, followers and pizza, blind dates with books and a sizzling fajita. Literary hip quotes and a few drunken scrotes. This is what you find at Dylan's Mobile Books. <laughs> this one's immovable. I cannot be moved, not by heart, bird, fish or man, not by gun, spade, bomb or van. The rain may weather me, the drought may crack me, but nothing can move me, not heaven, nor earth can change my place. Not man or God can move me. Bloody hell! But you wonder that I like how you as you read hit it. those, does that, you, you kind of go, I'm changing what I'm writing. If you were writing that in pencil, or if you're writing that on a computer, yeah. is there something just as you hear the? I used to only write stories longhand, and it's very different writing stuff on the computer because you edit as you go along yeah. a lot more. It's there is a different thing. The shame of your errors is more uh, readily erased. Isn't yes, it? yeah. And in some ways, I think that changes how you write it and how you feel about it it's a lot. There was a lady today telling us that she remembers her grandfather I think it was always typing on a typewriter and used to hit the key so hard that used to make holes in the paper where the letters would hit it. She says that like, noise yeah. <laughs> when it hits she it. She yeah. remembers it's good as a little girl holding them up to the light just to see the light come through the letters as well as the poems. Also in terms of serial killers now they can't go hang on a minute the person we're looking for is someone who the you on their typewriter hang on whatever you can't do that you go mm, this person whatever there's something wrong with their aerial setting yeah, on their no, phone selection. Now you just the... go, what's their IP address? Yeah. Okay, it's them. Yeah, exactly. There's no narrative, is there? <laughs> right, go on then, let's have a look. Right, and... Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah. So cool. What a lovely um, Ernest Hemingway down there as well. Yeah. Right, right, Josie, let's okay, do the end of the browsing. Oh. See, do I need, I have to say, there is something about magazines like the Five Shillings La Femme yeah. that just fascinate me. The, uh, but I wish I could find there was, there was such a... But a cult chemistry, so right, there we go then. Oh, have you had a look down here? The two pound books? Do you need Tender is the Night? Um, no, I haven't. Oh, look, McLuhan, pro and con, I haven't got that. What is that? Book about Marshall McLuhan. Oh, brilliant. <gasps> oh, and I, I've got loads of uh, copies of, of Beckett's sure. Happy Days, but um, nice maybe, maybe this one, yeah. Maybe that one will finally sort it out for you. Okay, but, what have we got? Memoirs of the Life of John Constable. It's a really nice edition, actually. Um, or William Golding. What else have we got there, Josie? P.D. James, Royal Marines, Wings Over Wales. Book of Yates, that was the same little book that I had when I was about 16, 17. Have you now reached an age, because you are so considerably younger than me, mm. where you do get a proper 
because uh, you, you remember I used to do a little bit where I go, young people think they've experienced nostalgia, they haven't, they've just experienced remembering things. Because nostalgia is, is seeing something and then going, yeah, th- I will never be able to, that will never happen to me again. Or that yeah, never. yeah. So that I, only really of, recently I've had proper, oh, gone, gone, all gone, can't get it back, fuck, fuck, fuck about things yeah I mean it's great fun I really really would appreciate this is it I was trying to make a joke about it, about how isn't it funny how wisdom only comes at the expense of not being able to change the past <laughs> <laughs> but yeah I definitely have felt that recently so uh, right I suppose we'll get back going by them. so that was uh, the hardest yeah. edit that Trent's ever going to have to yeah, do yeah I mean this is going to be uh, really uh, unfair this one. so Josie you happy with your uh, you happy with your purchases yeah, I really am. Go I've got on then. A nice book about socialism, a nice book about international socialism. Oh, I wish. But what I've done is I've slipped, I've slipped dirty magazines into the pages of all of them. I haven't. I'll give you this back now. Thank you so much. Thanks very much for listening. Uh, all of these are free, but if you would like to donate so that we can keep making our full-length versions of the book shambles, Josie and Robin's book shambles, then please go to cosmicgenome.com slash shambles and go and click on the Patreon link and then we can keep making as many of these as possible and we're having a lovely time doing them. Hope you like listening to them, really. Josie and Robin's book shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. (laughs) 